You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good afternoon. So uh, there's lots of conversation you would have probably heard as well. John speaking about, you know, there's a new vaccine where there appears to be quite a high level of efficacy with that. Pfizer, of course, showing great promise. And there is now conversations about, you know, richer countries buying up billions of doses. But there seems to be it's quite an involved process, transporting and storing in particular the Pfizer vaccine. Hello, Googs. Um, all vaccines have demands or requirements in terms of how you store them, how you transport them, how you administer them. Mm-hmm. These are not really any different, except in the case of this first rollout of Pfizer's genetic vaccine that they've uh, tested and announced results for. That one does have to be kept quite cold, minus 80 degrees. Obviously, you don't inject it at minus 80 degrees. You warm it up first. But... It, it, the face value sounds like that could be a showstopper, but in fact, in many countries, there is provision for minus 80 storage and transport. You can also use dry ice. And Pfizer themselves, their chief executive, told the BBC the week before last that their plan is to produce for the longer term a freeze-dried, powderized form of the vaccine that can be reconstituted at the point of need and then injected. And that would get around the problem. So they don't regard this as a long-term stumbling block. And there are lots of different vaccine products being made now. We estimate there are hundreds of projects taking place. There are tens of agents which have got into clinical trials now, and at least 23 or 24 of them are in phase three, the final hurdle of clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And they all work in many different ways. And one of the things that's been emphasized from the get-go is that we're not just making vaccines for one group of people. We're making vaccines that work in a range of different ways and a range of different circumstances because people acknowledge there are some places on earth where there is no fridge, there is no reliable electricity supply, so making a vaccine that needs to be kept cold all the time would be doomed to failure before it had even begun. Hmm. Instead, people are now working on other sorts of vaccines that are very stable at uh, sort of bush conditions, so that if you've got remote communities, you can get those vaccines into those people, because we all acknowledge that this is a global problem, and that until everyone is helped, everyone is at risk. Is there a reason why this particular, and I mean the Pfizer vaccine, needs to be cold, kept at such cold conditions, minus 80 degrees Celsius? What is it about the way in which it is, I guess, made that requires such extremely cold temperatures? Well, the vaccine itself is a genetic vaccine. This means it's a short piece of the genetic information that the virus itself uses to code for the outer coat, the spike protein that is what the virus uses to get into our cells. So in order to make the vaccine, they have taken that gene from the virus, a piece of a a fairly fragile genetic material called RNA, which is a chemical relative of DNA, but less robust. They've wrapped it up in an oily coating and they make billions of these particles which you then inject into the body, the cells at the injection point pick up the oily bags, unwrap them, read the genetic code that's inside, and then use that to express within those cells the genetic message as though the virus were there for real, but obviously it's only the outer coat of the virus, so it's powerfully educative for the immune system and it drives a powerful response, but it doesn't cause 
infection. There's no risk there. But because that formulation is itself quite fragile, it's using a fragile form of genetic material, and to, to keep those oily particles stable, you need low temperatures. Because whenever you raise the temperature of anything, it goes off more quickly. Food does the same thing. It's why we put food in the fridge. So by keeping it at low temperature, you maintain its potency, and then you warm it up just before you, you need it. It will survive in a fridge for a, for a number of days, but it wouldn't survive indefinitely in a fridge. Mm. So that's why you need to keep it cold. Uh-huh. We've got Ian in Santon who has a, a comment on vaccine distribution. Ian, good afternoon. Uh, hi. Uh, hi, Gugs and hi, Chris. So yeah, so, yeah, I think, I mean, exactly the points that have just been raised by, by Chris has, has said more my comment than a question. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't mention my business's name, but essentially we've been involved in quite literally at the coalface of vaccine bridge monitoring for the better part of 18 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently our technology is deployed in, in 74 countries where we do this all day, every day. Uh, and I, I think the point that is made is, is that, you know, not only is the vaccine uh, complex from a cold chain perspective because you've got minus 80 vaccines, you've got minus 20 vaccines, then you've got the more traditional two to eight degree vaccines. Um, so, so the challenges are, are, are not only do you have a massive volume of vaccine that's about to hit the world, so there's this huge surge in terms of physical volume of product, uh, but the cold chain, and I think I might disagree slightly with Chris in terms of the world's readiness as far as cold chain is concerned. And in fact, I wrote an article uh, on this for Business Day about five months ago saying that while the entire world is focused quite rightly so on the vaccine itself, uh, equal attention, if not more, has to be given to the supply chain to capacitate it to carry the vaccine because vaccines are developed in labs, but cold chains spread across the entire globe. And when you consider the logistical complexity of actually making that happen, not the least of which is the actual manufacturing of the fridges themselves and the monitoring systems that go along with them, uh, you know, this is this is an an exercise on a military scale as far as rollout is concerned, and uh, you know we, we do a lot of work with the, you know the global NGOs in this space, and I think everybody is is uh, there's a lot of trepidation in terms of you know, if and when this vaccine hits hits the supply chain. I think most countries around the world have got a mountain to climb in terms of capacitating those cold chains in an environment where money is also scarce because minus 80 freezers as a technology are an incredibly expensive technology mm-hmm. and most developing countries particularly just don't have the funds to try and you know, pay for those, that kind of cold chain. So, so I think you know, the, the vaccine is interesting and of course important, but at the same time, the supply chain and particularly the cold chain needs to be given some serious, serious attention. Because that was going to be my question, Ian. Certainly, you know, richer countries like countries in the EU, Germany, for instance, are already buying up quite large doses. They seem to have the money to put in the infrastructure. But the question was going to be, what would a developing country like South Africa, for instance, or any part of the SADC region, which has shown, for instance, negative growth over the last couple of years, do we have the kind of infrastructure and or the money required to build the kind of infrastructure this particular, I mean, we are speaking specifically about the Pfizer vaccine, but this particular vaccine would require, I mean, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Well, it's, it's massive. And I think another important point is, is that while we're all in, waiting in eager anticipation of the, of the COVID vaccine, we cannot forget that routine immunization programs for measles, polio, hepatitis, pneumococcal disease, all of that stuff which has to be done at the same time, we literally have to walk and chew, chewing gum at the same time. You cannot stop the routine immunization programs in favor of COVID and vice versa. Uh, and, a, and a very interesting example of how this really did bite the global healthcare fraternity is when, when the Ebola uh, outbreak happened in the DRC, 
they implemented very strict lockdown uh, measures, very similar to COVID for the obvious reason. It's because you wanted to limit people's movement because you didn't want to spread the Ebola, Ebola virus. Uh, the problem with that is that when they put that lockdown on, down, routine immunization actually came to a screeching halt. Uh, and not long after the Ebola outbreak, which killed 2,700 people, they had a major measles uh, ep- epidemic that killed six children. So Ebola killed 2,700, measles killed 6,000 because you interrupted routine immunization programs. So while the world has to continue with regular immunization, they've got to get additional cold chain capacity put in place, which is not just the fridges and the freezers, but also the monitoring systems and all the things that go along with it. That also has to happen to make sure that the vaccines are not only put in a cold chain, but that cold chain is in fact maintained. Mm-hmm. And, and to answer your question, the developing world, to a large extent, has been struggling with capacity for regular immunization uh, programs. Equipment is outdated. Uh, monitoring systems, you know, UNICEF, who, who are a major partner of ours, they do an, an incredible job in, in supporting countries in this regard. But there's a huge yeah, just in terms of routine immunization, there's a mountain to climb. Now you're going to have, I think the report that came out this morning, 2 billion doses are going to be distributed worldwide by UNICEF alone. Uh, and, of course, UNICEF predominantly supports the, you know, the, the developing world. So when you consider that kind of volume, uh, you know, my honest answer is I don't think we're ready. I think there's a lot of work to be done. It can be done. But in order to do it, a huge amount of effort, energy and will has to be plowed behind this to actually make this task achievable. Thank you so much. That's Ian in Santon giving some insights and in some of the logistics, the cost, the infrastructure involved in getting not just uh, you know, uh, the COVID vaccine but ordinary vaccines uh, in place. I see many of your questions uh, for Chris on uh, some of them about the vaccine, the efficacy of vaccines and we'll get to those in a moment but perhaps there's something as you were listening to the conversation you thought, I actually have a question give us a ring on 011-883-0702 your SMS is on 31702. <laughs> The Naked Scientist. Nine minutes before three o'clock, speaking to the Naked Scientist and taking your questions about vaccines, but also anything else that's on your mind on 011 SMSs on 31702. Chris, staying with vaccines, someone asked on the SMS line, how do they calculate the effectiveness of a vaccine? What calculation do they use to say, for instance, that its efficacy is above 90%? This is based on the performance in the clinical trial. So what they've done in the case of the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine is to recruit tens of thousands of people. You divide them into two groups. No one knows what group they're in and no one knows which drug they're going to give to them. But you have two drugs. One is the real vaccine. One is a placebo or an unrelated vaccine that will have no effect on coronavirus infection. You administer the vaccine to the individuals and you then allow a certain amount of time to elapse. Periodically, someone checks by breaking the code to see who's giving what and what the outcomes have been. And they have a look to see whether or not the trial is proceeding according to what you would hope would be the the, the safe outcomes. At the end of the trial, you then completely unblind all the data so you know which patients received what drug and you've also been testing them and monitoring them along the way so you know who caught coronavirus and who didn't and what you're looking for is an increase or an excess of cases in the group that did not get the the real vaccine compared with the group that did get the real vaccine so in the case of Pfizer's results they had 170 people who got coronavirus in their trial and 
of that 170, the vast majority of people were in the placebo, the non-vaccine intervention group. And when you work out what fraction of the people had it compared to had it in the vaccine group, it worked out that 94.5% of people, 95% of people, give or take, were uh, in the placebo group compared within the non-placebo group. And that tells you the effectiveness in their trial was 95%. It protected people 95% of the time. Now, obviously, that's not going to be the case when you get this into the real world. That number may be, need to be reevaluated, because when you get it out into even bigger groups of people and it's in real world circumstances for longer, the numbers may change. But as an initial set of data, it's very encouraging. But of course, what we can't say is how long people are going to be protected for. They've only done a short trial here because we've only known about the virus for a short while and we've only done the trial for a short while. So once we actually get this wheeled out into populations more broadly and can follow up for longer, we'll get a much clearer idea as to how long the protection it seems to confer is and if it stays at 95% or drops away. Uh, Joe in Kilani, thank you very much for holding. You have a question about the vaccine. Joe, good afternoon. Good. Uh, hello, Goose. Nice to hear your voice again. Uh, Hello, uh, Dr. Smith. I want to ask you, uh, bearing in mind what has been said before, will the vaccines, the, the three vaccines uh, from, the, uh, the, from the different groups, really be a game changer considering the logistics of it? You know, we have to immunize large populations, billions of people, herd immunity. Uh, the fact is uh, the cost of the vaccine, repeated injections, uh, and, and so on. Uh, do you really, in your opinion, uh, do you think it is going to be a game changer? I think it's going to help. I mean, there is no one single panacea for this kind of thing. It, it takes a range of different interventions to break the back of a pandemic. And the reason I was pointing out earlier that a number of different people are making vaccines that work in a number of different ways is that many of those vaccines will be unconstrained by the problems posed by, say, the cold chain because I, I am personally aware of, of colleagues of mine who are working on vaccines that will be completely stable at 70 degrees C. And that means that you won't have to keep them cold and they'll be very, very cheap. And the reason they're designing those vaccines, they don't anticipate they'll be here tomorrow, but they're working on a sort of two-year two, two timescale for this, is that then you've got something which is very cheap, so it's extremely affordable and extremely stable and extremely deployable across the, the global space so that w even if we don't get to everybody with vaccines that are more demanding in terms of their storage and cold chain requirements early, there's a longer term option there which can follow up in further waves of vaccination into the future. So I think we have a lot of options open to us, but it is early days. We're not out of the woods yet. We've, we're only just beginning to see the first runners in this race approaching one part of the clinical trials finishing line it is early days and there are many challenges ahead and in many respects making the vaccines been the easy bit making the vaccine at the sort of scale we need it at and then getting it across the world into the people who need it and paying for it exactly exactly as you allege that is the big challenge and that challenge is still to be surmounted so we're just going to have to wait and see
it is certainly true to say we are not out of the woods. This is this is not a done deal, and it is not going to be a, a one-horse race. This there's going to be lots of other interventions needed, lots of other practical considerations, and we're certainly going to not be able to do away with this sort of handshake-free and hug-free, socially distanced existence that we're all hang, mm. having to hang around with at the moment, and, and we're thoroughly sick of. That's here for a while yet, I'm afraid. Yeah, Joe, thank you so much for that question. A follow-up question: We're still staying on the issue of vaccines. Someone says, my question is what are the side effects of the vaccine and says for instance with the influenza vaccine you usually get the flu after the, getting the vaccine so what are the chances of getting um the coronavirus uh by getting the vaccine that's a question on our whatsapp hotline and i think that'll be our last one you don't get the flu from a flu jab because it, with the exception of a limited sort of flu vaccine given usually exclusively to children the vaccines we give people for flu are killed vaccines. They've been chemically brutalized and they cannot cause you to get the flu. What they can do, though, is stimulate your immune system quite hard. And because when your immune system is driven quite hard, it produces some of the symptoms of the flu for about a day after administration of the vaccine in some people, more often in younger people than older people, you can feel a bit tired. You can get an achy arm. Some people feel a bit feverish and have a headache, but these are transient symptoms and it's just a sign your immune system is, is doing its job and responding to the vaccine. These coronavirus vaccines, the ones we've seen so far, should be no different. And the side effect profile reported for them includes a handful of people who got a bit feverish, headaches, a temperature for a day or so after administration and then no other serious adverse reactions reported. It, it doesn't contain any live viable coronavirus. It doesn't contain any complete coronavirus in, in the vast majority of the vaccines which are being developed. Some involve developing coronavirus and then destroying it like we make the flu vaccine. But the ones which are being rolled out first, probably, they are not the virus. And therefore, the worst that they can do is to stimulate your immune system hard and produce some of those side effects I mentioned earlier. So the chances of them uh, giving you coronavirus are zero. Mm -hmm. Dr. Smith, always a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for your time. That is the Naked Scientist speaking all things vaccine today. Uh, Dr. Chris Smith, Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge.